It's 2003, and Islamic insurgents are flooding into Iraq to fight the U.S. invasion. A young female undercover journalist is taking a huge risk being seen in this public place. There are only a few Westerners and women amongst this angry crowd. Suddenly, over the loudspeaker, someone screams, Americans, Americans! The journalist looks up in horror to see a young man rushing at her with a knife. You, I couldn't go back. Changes your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Kogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. Mariana Venzella is an award-winning journalist who's been on assignment for the past 15 years, covering stories about the war in Iraq, the sex slave trade, opioid abuse, drug cartels, and illegal immigration, many times undercover and in the most dangerous situations a journalist can find themselves in. She's been chased by knife-wielding insurgents, harassed by gang members, and attacked by flesh-eating bacteria, and she survived it all to tell her stories. I caught up with Mariana between assignments and just after she dropped her son off for his first day at school. How are we doing, Scott? Good? Mariana Vanzella, and we are in Santa Monica, California. So, I understand you just dropped your son off at school? I did. Yeah. Second day at school? Second day. Uh, so you, you had to battle L.A. traffic to get here? I did. Uh, yeah. It's not easy when you leave, live on the east side to come all the way to the west side. It's like going to another country. So what's tougher, battling L.A. traffic or being in a war zone? <laughs> well, you can ask me which one I prefer. Yeah, what would you prefer? <laughs> to be in a war zone. Okay, that there. shows you how bad it is, right? <laughs> how bad the L.A. traffic is. It is. It's awful. It is really awful. And at least, you know, there's a purpose to being in a war. You feel like you're doing something. You're bearing witness to something. Um, yeah. You're in traffic. You're just... Just, yeah. you know, getting more and more anxious by the second. And that's that I something got here. I, I really want to get to. I mean, because you have a passion for these danger zones, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, that is, I think you have to have a special gene to want to go tell those mm-hmm. stories. Um, you know, for me, I just, it just is, it, it, it instills fear as a storyteller <laughs> to be trapped in the middle of these stories but this is something that you crave so we'll get into that but I'm, I'm just reading up on you know some of your history as a journalist because what past 15 years you've been a journalist yeah mm-hmm. there. I mean you've been all around the world I was reading about how you camped out in the Amazon oh yeah um, you rode on this death train um, <laughs> you snuck into the swamps of Nigeria to meet up with militants who were armed with AK-47s can you share a couple of stories with us about I guess being embedded with uh, with a group of people and and what's that what that's like like how you actually close your eyes at night and right. drift off to sleep without <laughs> worrying that something's going to happen to you you know i'm not i'm not a worrier usually well, that's i'm not good. somebody that worries too much uh i always think that you know the best outcome is always going to happen so but you're an optimist <laughs> i'm a very yes i'm an optimist okay. for sure can you take us back to 2003 when you're a young journalist and you're in the heat of battle as a journalist and, and take us back into that moment and, and describe what's happening to Absolutely. you. Uh, I was uh, just recently graduated from Columbia University's journalism school and uh, I realized I wanted to do um, sort of investigative documentaries 
And I'd been in New York during 9-11, and it was an incredibly traumatic experience um, for me. And I ended up being the only Portuguese journalist in Manhattan at the time. So I did all the reporting from ground zero for several days or weeks to back to Portugal. And I was 24 years old. Um, But I realized then that this was, that I was sort of on a mission to do investigative journalism. And 9-11 really marked me. And so when the United States invaded Iraq, Um, And then President Bush came out and said that it had been a big success and that Saddam Hussein had been toppled and that there was going to finally be peace in Iraq. Um, I decided right there and then that I wanted to move to the Middle East and sort of be close to a region that I knew was going to be incredibly important in terms of news events um, in in the future. And I wanted to learn Arabic, and I wanted to sort of be close to that story. So I moved to Syria, which is a neighboring country to Iraq, Um, Iraq was too dangerous. Again, I was a 25-year-old freelance journalist, and I enrolled in the University of Damascus. And the secret, there's a a very, it's a a police state, so the secret police are everywhere. And you're not allowed to be a journalist in Syria uh, unless the government knows, and they have to give you sort of a license to be a journalist, and you usually have a government minder with you at all times, so you can't be, work freely as a journalist. So I didn't tell anyone that I was there, that I was a journalist. Um, I just told everyone I was there to learn Arabic. And I started making friends, and even to my friends, I wouldn't tell them because I really did. I wanted to be able to look for ideas and sort of find things that I wanted to report on. And eventually, I found became best, very good friends with a Syrian man who was from this small border town that borders uh, between Syria and Iraq, that is now the last stronghold of ISIS. Um, and he told me that he was from this little town, and all his friends were crossing from Syria, his Syrian friends, into Iraq to fight against the Americans. So they would disguise themselves as civilians, they would cross the border in the cover of darkness, and they would basically, um, you know, try to kill American soldiers. And this was something that was not in the news at the time. Uh, The U.S. government and President Bush were touting this as a huge success, and uh, no one was talking about an insurgency. And this sort of raised a lot of alarm bells. Wait a second, I've been you know, reading all about this conflict and nothing says there's no talk of these foreign insurgents coming in to fight against the American invasion. And so I asked him if he could take me to his town so I could meet some of his friends and talk to some people. And, uh, and that's when the adventure began. My, my boyfriend at the time, uh, who's now my husband, Darren, who had been to Columbia University Journalism His last school, name is? Darren Foster. Yep. And he'd gone to Columbia University journalism school with me. We fell in love at Columbia University. And uh, he was a print reporter, and I, was, I wanted to be a television journalist. And he came to visit me in Syria, and I told him about this story. And we both decided it was an important story. We needed to go up to this town with our friend Tarek and, uh, and see what was happening there. Nothing would have prepared us for what happened when we got there. Um, we thought that people wouldn't be willing to talk on camera to us about what they were doing, uh, because on the one hand, it could get them in trouble um, with the law, um, obviously, because the Syrian regime didn't want this at the time to be open, and they didn't want people to know that they were allowing, essentially. They said that they were allowing Syrians to go into Iraq to fight against the Americans, and this would bode really badly for the Syrian regime. And on the other hand, there's a lot of different factions in this area, so they could get in trouble with all these other factions, including Al-Qaeda. There was a a strong Al-Qaeda presence um, in this area at the time. So we never thought we were going to get people on camera, but we wanted to see for ourselves and sort of get a sense of what was happening there. So we took a little camcorder and 
uh, Tarek introduced us to all his friends. And were you covered up and I yes. mean, easily recognizable as a tourist or? It's a good question because we were there for a whole week and we barely saw any women on the streets. This is an incredibly conservative area and women are mostly, mostly stay at home. And the women that we did, did see were completely covered. So the whole time I had a hijab on, the whole time I was there. Um, and this was, you know, to respect the local culture, but also to sort of keep a low profile. Mm -hmm. I also, I'm blonde, and I also dyed my hair uh, brown uh, at the time, um, just because I didn't want to be, you know, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't the focus of everyone's attention once I got there. But as soon as we got to the market, we thought, oh, I'll be fine. You know, I have my hijab on, my head cover. We have this little camcorder. We'll go to the market. We'll start filming. People would tell people we're tourists. What, what could possibly go wrong? Well, as soon as we took out the camera and started filming, uh, there was a guy on a loudspeaker that starts shouting, Americans, Americans, or basically Westerners is what they mean, but they were saying Americans, Americans, shouting. And suddenly we were surrounded by people um, threateningly, um, in a thre very threatening way. And a kid, we had an eight-year-old kid that came towards us with a knife. Um, and jokingly, but nonetheless, like a knife that he was coming towards us with. And we literally ran out of the market. It was really, and we're not, you know, easily scared, but it was a very sort of uneasy situation. You've been, as we talked about before, you've been in so many challenging situations. You've said that you'd rather be out there risking it all to tell a story than even being in LA traffic. <laughs> and I'm just interested, like, what is it about that? What, is it a passion to get the truth out? What is it that drives you to want to tell these stories? I do it ultimately because um, I do believe that what drives me is I, I, I think that there are very important stories out there. And um, I believe that somebody needs to tell them. And, um, and I have the incredible honor of being able to be one of those vehicles, to be able to tell these stories about these really important issues and how they're affecting people all around the world. And I think the challenge most of the times is not so much, um, yes, it's risky and it's difficult, and a lot of times we find ourselves in very sort of difficult situations, but I think the, the biggest challenge for us is making sure that even though we're telling stories about people very far away that at the surface have nothing connect, that connects us to them, mm. is making those stories connect to us in yes. a way that we can look at that and it's like, that could be me. How challenging is it for journalists right now where we live in a world where there's so many doubters about the picture that journalists are painting of mm -hmm. what's happening in the world? There are a lot of doubters. Oh, that's just their, that's their skew on the story. And mm -hmm. there's this constant discussion about where the truth really lies. How hard is it now in 2018 where we're talking about, you know, fake news right it's 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 awful um it's more than just trying to figure out where the truth lies is like actually there's now you know people debating what what the truth actually means if the truth is really the truth it's gotten to ridiculous proportions and i do think that i it, it hurts me deep inside every time mm. i hear that term the fake news it just does because i know so many of my colleagues out there, you know, that are doing incredibly important work, you know, that aren't being paid the salaries of, uh, you know, CEOs, and they're not doing it for the money, essentially. They're doing There's it because it's important. Yeah. And because we need 
journalism. We need the media. Um, and so, and, and the media is the news is not the enemy. It's we need to be enlightened, not. right? Absolutely, I mean, we we need the media. This uh, democracy would not work if there were if the media didn't exist. If the and press it can't be exist, controlled that, in the way that yeah, so many people want to control. Keeping checks it. and balances, right? That's yeah. that's what we're all about. So this just calling it fake news is giving a bad name to everyone out there who is doing a very big part in keeping our democracy healthy and alive. It's very important to remain neutral, but it's also, I think, important to have an opinion when uh, that opinion is necessary, or to, and to show that you're a human being. You know, some doing stories, some of the stories that I've done, for example, there have been moments where you know you're supposed to stay and keep yourself composed, right? And uh, and and that's not always the case. And right. I do think that actually it's important to show that we're also human beings, right. and and through us being human beings, we can help our viewers also understand what it's like to be there and to yes. feel that and to, you know, to live through that situation. Yeah. So I think that's the difficult balance. That's the balance. And go time. back to your point before where you want to bring that emotion and mm -hmm. how you react as a mother when you see another mother struggling Absolutely. with their child. Absolutely. I guess where 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 it becomes challenging is if it's politicized, if, if, mm -hmm. if it's if it's a, a particular point of view, political mm -hmm. point of view that you have, and and where you don't let that get in the way of telling the story, yeah. and right? I, I usually I try very hard not to, and I, I don't think I, I do. Um, yeah. I always I'm also very a very important aspect of journalism for me is of the journalism that I do is empathy. Mm. I'd say that's sort of the key word that I hold with me and tra travels with me everywhere. It's empathy. It's mm. whether even when you're talking to people that are. Um, you know, considered to be the enemy for, for many people, or you you approach that subject always with a little bit, with empathy, because it is important to try to understand why they did what they did and how, you know, sort of walk in their shoes for a yeah. little bit, uh, whoever it is that you're talking with. And I always try to do that. And I'll tell you the story of the Nigerian uh, militants that was very interesting. So we were in the Niger Delta in Nigeria doing a story about the oil conflict there. And uh, there's this group of militants called MEND, that's their group, and they were at the time, you know, be protesting the ex exploitation of oil in this, their region and how all the money from the oil um, industry was not, was leaving the country and not staying. Um, and in order sort of to uh, call attention for their fight, and their struggle, they started kidnapping oil workers, mm. so foreign oil workers that were living in Nigeria. And they were stealing oil from the pipes and doing all sorts of um, operations in the Niger Delta. So we spent, uh, my, again, my husband and I spent about two weeks there. And the goal was always to actually go and meet the militants. Uh, we wanted to see what they had to say, why they were doing this, and hear their side. Um, and uh, it always happens with journalists, and that's why it's important to stay optimistic, is that it, the access usually happens within the last sort of day or hour that you're there and it's when you're almost you've almost given up and you're like okay this is never going to happen i'm tired i just want to go home but if you persist just a little bit longer persistence is another of my keywords it, it is guaranteed it's almost always guaranteed to happen and this was one of those cases where all these doors that we were promised had been shut closed everybody had told us that there's no way they're um, they're doing their operations right now, they're too busy or they're too scared to meet with the media right now or it's not in their interest, it's never going to happen. And then I think it was like the last day that we were there, we heard that uh, somebody was able to contact some of them and they agreed to meet us. And, but the thing was that we would have to get in this car 
and because we weren't supposed to know where the location was. So we'd get into this car and this driver that I guess uh, worked with them would take us to this place. And it was maybe an hour, maybe a two hour drive. We weren't sure, but this is going to take us to this place. And then there we would meet the militants, but nothing else was told. And then that this driver would take, bring us back home, which is the only thing, Are he's, is he gonna bring us back to our hotel? And they said, yes. It's such a huge risk though. It is a huge risk, it is a huge risk. But we, we had gotten in touch with this through a Nigerian journalist that had been in touch with MEND, with this group for many years. And, uh, and we trusted um, in this case with our lives, trusted this person with our lives. And she, she, she was an amazing, very critically acclaimed uh, Nigerian journalist. And, um, and she told us, it's, it's okay. if they said it's okay, it's okay. If they said they want to meet you, um, it's not in their interest to kidnap you or, do any, or harm you in any way. They want to tell and share their stories. And so we got, Darren and I got in the car with our little camera and it was just the two of us. For years we worked, it was just the two of us. He'd be the producer and camera person. Is this a great way film. to fall in love by the way? <laughs> it was amazing. You have no idea the adventures we had. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the diseases, I flesh-eating parasite in the Amazon. I got a weird bug in this trip in Nigeria that my whole body was covered in hives. And he had to take me to a local hospital and all sorts so of adventures. He's seen you at your best and he's your worst. He's seen me at my and he still loves me. <laughs> That's real love. So I always said that I travel not only with the person, you know, the camera guy, the director, producer, but also my personal bodyguard. I mean, a guy who yeah. I know would do anything for He'd me. Take right? a bullet for you if he had to. <laughs> exactly. He's going to be there for you. So I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah. So we get into this car, we travel for like an hour or so, and then we get to this, and we're in the middle of the nowhere, and we're traveling into this sort of, uh, green area with no houses or nothing around it and we go into this basically we stop the car in this uh, little port area so there's all these sort of canals and swamps the Nigerian swamps and there was this little tiny port and we get there and Darren's we're still in the car Darren's getting his gear together I'm getting my stuff together and suddenly we hear a little knock on the window and it's this like eight-year-old nine-year-old kid and we roll down the window and he says, I think it was Oyibo, how they say white person. Mm. Um, I think that was the word in a, in a Nigerian. Um, hey, white person, um, the people you're looking for are over there. So just go over there. So we get out of the car and we sort of follow this kid. And still Darren is sort of fixing his gear and looking down. I'm doing something and also looking down and suddenly I look up and there it is, the little port area, which is basically just a couple of wood planks out into the, the swamps. And I look up and I see nine or 10 uh, guys, all most of them like in their early 20s, 19, 20 year olds, with holding AK-47s and uh, waiting for us. And with these like masks and uh, covered, their heads covered and just waiting for us. And I look up and it's, Darren, holy shit, <laughs> look, look, he looks, look what's look, ahead of us here. Ahead of us. Keep walking keep right ahead. And he does, and he was like, holy shit, let's keep it cool. So we walk up there, and we, we introduce ourselves very politely. We, you know, it's always important to keep very calm. We can start you know, getting nervous there. It's not going to solve anything. So very calmly, and we explain, we're journalists. We're here to talk to you guys. We want to figure out why you didn't tell your story, all that stuff. And uh, they said, okay, we're going to take you to our base. So they get us in a 
boat and immediately there they have uh, whiskey in the boat and they start drinking whiskey and asking us if we want to drink some of their whiskey. I think we actually took a couple of sips as well. Just to simulate. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's it's very important gesture. to show that we're not, you know, we're not hey, above we're anyone good. here. We're do So yeah, it's important to eat and do as they do and yes. do as they tell you and as they ask you and be polite. And yeah, and we get into the boat and then he drives us up to the camp. And at this point, you know, adrenaline, I'm very excited because I'm not only because this is a crazy situation, but also this is what you an thrive for, right? Yes. I mean, this is what you it's want. A, it's an amazing. You're heading to the meat of the story. Yes, and yeah. because I know that I'm finally going to be able to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so we get to the camp, to the base, and their general shoot at sight. That's his uh, nom de guerre. Is waiting for us at the camp base, and uh, he's got his like white white wife beater on and uh, something around his head as well, and he's holding his own AK-47. And, and how old is he? He's in his 40s. Okay. And uh, and we get there, and he says, "Oh, he looks, takes one look at me, and I, oh, I'm so sorry." Uh, we allow the man to go into the camp, but there's no way you can come into the camp because that's bad juju. That's like bad luck. Um, and a woman, if you step on this camp, then that's the end of our activities here because we'll be blessed or there'll be bad luck for the rest of our lives, um, which was awful. <laughs> so, yeah. Here I am, traveled all this way, yeah. and now Darren's going to be able to see it, and I'm not. <laughs> it's going to break me. But, uh, and but you said, so, I used to be a man, and I really still am a man. I'm disguised <laughs> oh, as a I woman. Oh, I said, guess who wears the pants in the house? It's oh, not him. Oh, yeah, right. It's me. Okay. <laughs> no, so they allowed Darren to go into the camp, but then we were able to convince them to uh, go out on the boats they had. And they oh, also okay. wanted to show their arsenal. So they came out with all their weapons, and there were several speedboats. And we did the interview with General Shudat Sight with all his speedboats going around us in circles just to sort of show their power. He wanted to show his might. Power, exactly. Yeah. Um, boots on the ground journalism is something that has been a little bit lost in the past few years. Why do you years. think that is? Because it's cheaper to make studio television, right. essentially. And because, uh, you know, when you just have to get two people to disagree on something, mm -hmm. and that makes great TV. Great yeah. TV, people like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, I truly believe that uh, real journalism is, uh, you know, not only the people that make phone calls and have a long list of people that they're calling and in, in investigating, but, um, but also boots on the ground, actually going there and hitting the, the, the field and uh, spending time there. Which is kind of nice that now you're working on Explorer. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> you you literally explore the world. Oh, and you've amazing. done some really fantastic stories. So you mentioned that you have a, an eight-year-old child, and I'm mm -hmm. just interested, since you've had your child together, mm -hmm whether that has influenced your choices and stories and where you go and whether it has affected your choices mm -hmm. in terms of what happens in a story, like how far you'll push following mm -hmm. a story when you're in it. Um, I think yes, a little bit, but I also think experience. Just uh, the more stories you do and the more sort of iffy situations you've been in, mm. the more you realize that maybe you should be a little bit more careful. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of the stories and so things. So it's maturity, yeah, as it's well maturity. as just the fact that yes. you've got a kid. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I do think that in a way also, on the flip side of that, I think it's pushed me more into, um, yes, maturity has held me from maybe putting myself in some of the situations that I did when I was 24 years old going mm. to Syria. Um, but at the same time, I do think on the flip side is that 
every single story I do out there is not so much about me right. being a star at 20 years old. It's more because I'm trying to make my family proud and I want to make my son proud. Mm. And I want to be sure that, you know, when I'm out there, since I'm away from him, um, that I'm doing and I work, that I'm working as hard as I can and as much as I can to tell this story, um, that there's a reason I'm out there, that I'm not just making... Yeah, you have a real purpose in life. And, yes. and, and, and you know, as he gets older, he's going to understand just yeah. how important it is. Just talking about him makes me emotional sometimes. So I got that's caught great. up there. Isn't it wonderful, right? It's, yeah, it's incredible. It's a life-changing thing. Oh, it's completely life-changing. It is. Yeah. You just, it's uh, that, uh, the word that I mentioned before, empathy, too. It's something that I carry even more with me now in stories. Yeah. Because when you become, um, you know, responsible for another human being's life, you realize just how challenging it is mm. to, uh, to raise up good people. <laughs> you seem to have a, a propensity for stories about underdogs, people who are, who are struggling mm -hmm. against the odds. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that comes from? It's more of the people that I think need to have a, a, a light mm. on them and that they don't currently do. It's the stories I think that are underreported, um, that are the ones that really attract me the most. The stories that for whatever reason really haven't been reported much on, but, I do, but that I do think are important to be reported on. You've gone on to do such a, an elaborate collection of stories um this oxycontin express story um powerful how, how did you how did you decide to follow that why did you decide to follow that story so um it was i was working at current tv at the time and uh we'd read a small little clip on the miami herald at the time about it was a st small little story about how all these pain clinics were opening up all around south florida and how in, at some point there were more pain clinics in South Florida than there were McDonald's. What is a pain clinic? A pain clinic is a place where supposedly you go if you don't want to go see a, if you don't want to go to an office doctor, you go to a pain clinic. If you're in some sort of pain and they can do, they can do a x-ray, they have x-ray machines and they have a doctor on staff and he can talk to you and give you some pills for you to basically mm. start feeling better. Um, the problem with these pain clinics is that they were giving out pain pills like they were Tic Tacs. There were people from all across the eastern seaboard and um, all across America that were coming down because it was really easy to get these drugs, to get Oxycontin. At the time, nobody was talking about Oxycontin. It wasn't, we did not have the opiate crisis as we see it nowadays in our hands. So I remember hearing Oxycontin and pain pills, what is this? And like going online and looking into this and then finding out, oh wait, this might be a story. I mean, there's actually people coming from all over America to go to South Florida to get these pain pills. Are they in that much pain that they can't get, can't get their pain pills back in their states? What's, what is happening here? And, and there was all this talk about this addiction to this new pharmaceutical, to these new pharmaceutical drugs. And so we spent, um, I think it was like almost a whole year reporting on the story, going back and forth, Miami, um, Fort Lauderdale, all over South Florida, and then Kentucky and West Virginia and Ohio and all the areas that were really being really hard hit by all, all these pills. So basically all these people were coming down, paying the doctors, saying, I, and I actually filmed this undercover. I put an undercover camera on myself. I went to one of these pain clinics and I said, oh, I have back pain. I sometimes, I can't 
walk very well, I have a little bit of a back pain. And they said, so what do you need? Would you like Percocets? Would you like Oxycontin? It's as easy as Just that. off what you said. Just no, as off what we no said. No proper diagnosis. No, they said, oh, you'll have to, this was at the reception. You'll have to meet the doctor then you in the back. And then you pay for the doctor. And then they probably want to all do cash, an all cash, no insurance accepted. The x-ray machine was right there. So you'd pay for the x-ray machine. And in a lot of these pain clinics, they were also dispensing the drugs themselves. So they were making money out of the more, which is an incredible like conflict store. of interest. Exactly, interest, because you're making money out of how many prescription pills I prescribe to you, right? So it's And then once you crazy get people situation. on it, then right. they want to stay Then you're hooked. So the thing that we found out about these pills is that they're incredibly addictive. It's mm. basically heroin in a pill, right? They are incredibly helpful for people suffering from real pain. And they were initially prescribed for people with uh, cancer, um, terminally ill cancer patients. But then they started being prescribed to everyone. I have a headache, here's an Oxycontin, mm. or a bottle full of Oxycontins. I have a hip pain, here's a bottle of Oxycontins. And what was really tragic is that a lot of people who went, so these were sort of the crooked doctors that were doing it and just, they wouldn't even look at the patients. They would pass, they would just sign these prescription papers and you give me $500 and here's, Here's 180 fix. oxys and come back next week. And they would take them b back up to West Virginia and Kentucky and sell them for three, four, ten times as much. And then they would use that money to fund their trip to come back down and to sustain their own addiction. So it all led to what we see nowadays. But what was really tragic about it is that you had these crooked doctors, but you also had you know, good doctors who, because they were persuaded by the pharmaceutical company making these pills, in this case it was Purdue Pharma that was making Oxycontin, and they started a campaign in the 90s where they persuaded the medical community to uh, give out more of these pills because they weren't addictive. You know, we, everybody knew they were addictive, that they really persuaded the medical community. So you had these good doctors who would see, you know, a 17-year-old kid who was injured playing uh, football in school, and he comes in, and uh, what kind of pain? I'm in really bad pain. Here's a bottle of Oxycontin. You'll feel much better. Mm. And they didn't mean badly, but one of the stories that we followed was this kid who was 17 or eight, 17 years old when he got his first bottle of Oxycontin. And five years later, he was doing heroin. And, you know, by someone who with no uh, addiction in his past whatsoever. And we heard, we keep hearing these stories. So we've been following, so this, we did the Oxycontin Express. It raised all sort of alarms about what was happening in Florida. They used that film in Congress in Florida um, to sort of change to the change law policy. there. Which was incredible. It won a Peabody Award. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's one of the ones that I'm certainly most proud of. And we kept following that. We did two other films after that. One to look at heroin and how people were moving from, from uh, Oxycontin to heroin. And then the third installment of that was Fentanyl, which we did just two years ago, which won a uh, DuPont Award. I, I love that in 2011, you received the prestigious Livingston Award. Yeah. Um, and that was for a report that you did, Rape on the Reservation. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the topics that you cover, wide, varied, uh -huh. do they just, where are they coming from? I mean, you, you mentioned before with the Oxycontin thing, it was an article that you yeah. read and then you started digging. I mean, where are you going to for your ideas? Right. That was also, it was brought to me actually by um, a producer who was working on that story. But it all started from a statistic and it was a heart-wrenching statistic, which is that one out of every three women in uh, indigenous uh, uh, reservations in this country are raped in their lifetimes. God. It is a crazy, crazy number. And uh, when we uh, saw that and when we heard that, we decided this is a story that we have to do. Why is it? 
Um, who's doing this and why is it happening? And I think the most, so we spent time on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, um, talking to, spending a lot of time with a mother whose, I believe, 16-year-old daughter had been brutally raped and killed. Um, and again, it, this mother had lost her daughter, but she uh, could name you know, dozens of other women that she knew had been raped as well, hadn't been killed, but had been raped as well. It was just something that was part of that community. Um, and so we spent time there investigating and looking and searching for answers. And we spent a lot of time, actually, in that story was there was a, a very powerful moment where we spent time in high school uh, talking to kids because we wanted to see how far back this would go. Why is it okay to rape women? Because it seemed like a lot of people, for a lot of people there, it was, um, an, accepted it, it was thing. an accepted thing. Yeah. So we got a room with, I think, three or four uh, high school kids, and it was incredibly eye-opening. Was, I was not expecting it at all, but they started saying, yeah, my dad beat my mom. He'd get really drunk. Alcoholism is a big problem in these reservations, in this reservation. And my dad, I grew up watching my dad beat my mom, and the, you know, women should be subservient to men. Mm. And, uh, you know, I saw him come home, and if he wanted to, he could do whatever he wanted to. And so I think I want to be a man like him. And so he essentially said that he, they'd, he'd been all these parties that they'd go to, they'd, there's nothing to do in this community, they'd say, so they'd all get really, really drunk. And then they'd, they'd uh, rape girls that were passed out drunk. Why is it that they think that this is acceptable? Right. It's, it's much easier to just say, okay, point the finger and say you're guilty. It's, I yeah. think it's much and that's harder. wrong. Yes. But and why? I think it's much harder to try and understand why. Well, you also have a quote which I really like. You say, when it comes to really tough stuff in life, mums are the last ones to give up the fight. Oh, it's true. Whether it's an amputee in Sierra Leone who agreed to have her arms chopped off by rebels in order to save her son, or the mother of a young man struggling with prescription drugs. As a female journalist, you're giving a voice to these women, and you talk a lot about connecting with women in your stories. I do. I think that you see a lot of news stories. Um, even I'm guilty of that. It's uh, a lot of times men are more willing to talk, and we do a lot of, you know, sort of these dark, underground stories and a lot of times it's the men that are pulling the levers and really controlling these situations and I think what I've been wanting to do and what I can bring in as a woman is to always try to show the female side of this and the power that a mother has um, they do not give up and even if their child um, you know dies or is killed um, they keep at it and they you know so many women in the drug story for example stories that I've done for example where you know women who've lost their kids and it would be so much easier and probably more comforting to them perhaps to just give up or you know just not want to think about it yet anymore but so many of them have made it then their lives mission to not allow this to happen to anyone else because they don't want to see any other mothers suffering like they're suffering I'm just wondering, is there, a, is there a story that's out there? You don't have to be specific, or maybe you don't <laughs> want anybody to get the scoop, but is there sort of a holy grail story that's out there waiting for you, even if you don't want to disclose it, like something you're eyeing up that you really have a passion for telling right now? Or are you uh, just following 
what's going on in the in the news and looking yeah, for ideas. You know, I think that the opiate crisis, the biggest drug epidemic that America has ever seen, um, is all around us. We hear about it constantly, but I don't think I think that sometimes people get saturated and mm -hmm. just decide, oh, I don't want to hear about it. We already know there's an mm -hmm. opiate crisis. Tell me something new. I think keep it, keeping at it is incredibly yeah. important. Well, fentanyl was a good one because mm -hmm. it was an important one. Prince, we I started hearing because of all the contacts that we have in that world about this drug called fentanyl. Nobody knew. I didn't know what it was. I'd been reporting about prescription drugs and opiates. So tell us so we understand. And suddenly I, they, somebody tells me, fentanyl. There are people dying of fentanyl. And I was like, what is fentanyl? And I did a search. And so it's a pharmaceutical drug. It's 50 times stronger than heroin. And it's essentially a painkiller as well. It's used and it was approved by the FDA for terminally ill cancer patients, for people who are really in the last dying, dying, dying. Because it, Why? Because it is incredibly addictive. Um, and yet, just like they did with Oxycontin, there were pharmaceutical companies out there that started um, essentially, uh, you know, marketing these drugs as not addictive and paying doctors, speakers fees to prescribe more and more of these drugs to people that really didn't need them and shouldn't be using these drugs. And as I started reporting on this and finding out more about fentanyl and telling my boss, we have to do this story. It's a new drug. It's 50 times more powerful than, than heroin. And people are starting to die from it all over the country. We need to do this story. And uh, uh, so he said, yeah, after I insisted on this story for several times, several months, he finally said yes. And we started doing the story. And it was even worse than we thought. New Hampshire, for example, there had been, I think, five times more people dying from overdoses of fentanyl than heroin. And now there was a huge spike in, in deaths last year from opiates. More people die from opiate, from drug overdoses in this country, mainly opiates, than they do from car crashes, for example. It's the number one cause of accidental deaths in this country, or from gun injuries. More than cars? More than cars and more than guns. It's crazy. It's crazy. Because uh, guns is something like 35,000 people, I think, in the United States. I believe last year it was something like 117 people a day were die are dying every day from an opiate overdose. Wow. And so then when our story was, we put out our story and then Prince actually died of an overdose yes. and it was fentanyl as well. And suddenly everybody was talking about fentanyl. Um, and that, that was, you know, it's, it's important to know that it's out there because it's an incredibly dangerous, dangerous drug and it's out there and again, it's still killing more and more people. So the opiate crisis, trying to figure out why, where it's coming from, but also how it started. And in many ways it started because of American pharmaceutical companies trying to push their drugs. And so we can blame Mexico, you can, we can blame China where these drugs are made in labs. We can blame all these other countries, but ultimately the only way we're actually gonna solve this problem is if we actually look at ourselves and realize this is an American-made problem. These drugs, were, this epidemic was created in America and how can we change this so this doesn't happen again? And journalism is important for that. So because we are the ones that are, you know, tasked and with, with showing that. All right. Well, I, I have a feeling you'll be following that one. I will. Mariana, thanks for all your stories. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> uh, where do people go if they want to learn more about you? Well, Explorer. Yes. Uh, I have a couple of documentaries that I've worked on for Fusion as well. Yes. Um, and uh, hopefully more places, but hopefully more Explorer too. That's what we're hoping. We're at yeah. a hiatus now, uh, yeah. but we're hoping to, that, that that will come back. So more people watch Explorer, the more we'll be out there traveling, doing what we love. <laughs> what we love, telling stories of the world. Yeah, and show, show how wonderful our world is. You yes. know, get people to get out of their couches and go out and explore. Yeah, get the passport. I mean, how amazing is that? 
you know, and get yeah, out and it. explore. Yeah. And and uh, don't go sit in a resort. Go immerse yourself <laughs> with people. Absolutely. That's <laughs> what know, I say all the time. Yeah. Drink the coffee they drink and try exactly. things and just just be part of where you are. You know, <laughs> that's the best advice I can give people. Otherwise, percent. you just are sort of transporting yourself into a, right. a place that's just like home. Exactly. So we normally end with a few questions. So Marion, if you were gonna do a road trip across America, or maybe let's say you were gonna take a long drive and you could have anybody from any time in history in the car with you, who would you take? Holy moly. Um, I would probably take Vasco da Gama. So he was a Portuguese explorer, one of the most famous explorers of all, all time. Well, the Portuguese, Portuguese yeah, unbelievable mariners explorers ruled, ruled the world once yes uh, many centuries ago but he was here was a man um, you know who was not afraid and who took that getting out of the couch really to the next level yes. he got on these ships and traveled all around the to world to the edge of the ocean the edge of the ocean falling off the other I side mean, <laughs> you, if you think what I do is dangerous this guy was crazy and I, I really you know I, I my son is called Vasco yeah partly because of Vasco da Gama and um, I would love to be able to sit down with him and find out what it was like to, to explore this unseen and unknown world uh, so many centuries ago well, I'm sure you'd have a few stories to share with him who else would you take in the car because you got a couple other people oh I can take more people yeah. um, um, you know, I'm a huge fan. A person that has had an Im impact on my life has been Christiana Mampour. Mm -hmm. She's a journalist. I grew up also watching her reports from the Gulf War back in the day and thinking, wow, she's amazing. She's incredible. Here's a woman. Um, you know, you see so many men on television. And here's a woman who has a lot of knowledge and who is not afraid and who's out there telling the truth. A strong voice. A strong voice, a strong female voice. So she's always been a very important presence. And I've had the opportunity to meet her, and she's incredible. And um, you know, I would definitely take her because there's so much that I want to learn more from her and from other female journalists around me. Um, and then I would take my son because I do want him to Because he could learn. Yes, he already travels with me as much as possible. But how amazing would it be to have a kick-ass female journalist, Christiana Ampour, Vasco da Gama, his namesake, with all this history, he loves history by the time, by the way, so with all this history behind him, telling him what, what it was like to conquer the world. I mean, that would be pretty spectacular. Be awesome. <laughs> Can you make that happen? Well, I'm just thinking about that. You know what? One day in the future, it may happen. You never know. You never they take know. his DNA and it's bring true. him back. It's true. Um, and your last day on Earth, Mariana, if you knew that you were going to be having your last day on Earth, what would be that day? What, how, would you, how would you set up your last day on Earth? Uh, well, surrounded my family and friends and a big party. I'm a sucker for parties. I love parties. I love hosting parties. I love having people around me. I'm a very sociable person. Mm -hmm. Um, I love to drink. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you? What's your drink of preference? I love the Portuguese vinho verde, yeah. which is sort of a, a half sparkling whitish wine. Although it's called vinho verde, green wine. It's okay. a very Portuguese thing. Is it thing, a strong very alcoholic drink? Or no, no, no. It's a wine. It's always it's, it's a wine. Just, I like I, well, I like my wines. Okay. I like my all colors of wines, all Portugal. sorts, all yeah. brands. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's wine. But but sparkling. Spar sparkling even yeah. better. I mean, okay. if it's a really expensive of bottle of champagne, that if I can choose any. Anything really expensive bottles of champagne. Verve, are you a Verve, yes. a Moet? Give me everything that's yeah, expensive. Yeah. And then surrounded by a family and friends and uh, at my house uh, yeah. where I can host and uh, where I can just be surrounded by the people I love, but in a party, in a party setting. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you Great. so much, yeah, Paul. It was wonderful. Thank you. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. 
You never know, you might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it.